Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellenbecker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. The Ellenbecker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building, and also in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building, right across the street from Winkies. We're now able to service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit us at ellenbecker.com for more information. So I want to welcome everybody to today's show. Um, It's kind of an interesting show because this is a topic that's come up with me personally um, and my own family as well as with my clients. So today we're going to talk a little bit about elder care and working with our senior clients and senior family members. And when you reflect, I often think when you get together with that elderly parent or friend, It's often the best time to gather some data while enjoying food and conversation over a meal. These lunches or dinners are also a great opportunity to spark awareness to check in with that aging parent just to kind of see how they're doing, see how they're doing with their daily life activities, and start the conversation really to listen to their wishes. And I say that um, pretty seriously. You know, we as children tend to take on that role as a parent for our parents, and we often forget that our parents really know how they want to age gracefully and where they want to age gracefully. It's funny, most people really try to avoid this conversation, and at the end of the day, both individuals find it comforting and enlightening to hear each other's perspectives on the whole topic of aging gracefully. So as you think about that conversation with your parent, remember, timing is everything. Pick a time to have that conversation when there's no distractions or no other obligations so you can focus entirely on the conversation and give it your undivided attention. Another tip is to share your observations, concerns, and feelings. You may have noticed your mother or father trying to struggle struggle to keep up the house Is there a lack of food? Check the refrigerator out. And it can be hard to address these topics, but if you do it in a loving way, it makes it much easier. In our world, we often talk about those activities of daily living, and I'm just going to list them um, and think about it. Are you struggling with any of these, or do you find your parent is? Uh, The activities of daily living include eating, bathing, dressing, toiletrying, and transferring from a bed or chair, as well as maintaining continence. So assess your parent or your family member or friend and see if they're struggling with any of these activities of daily living. You know, as you're having this conversation, always emphasize that your role is an advocate. You're not here to tell somebody how to age gracefully or where to age gracefully, but to really work with them as their advocate and to listen to their concerns and start to plan. You know, it's always best to plan out this next phase of life when you're not dealing with a health crisis 
um, or in a short time um, frame. So I think everybody has a little bit of sense of what we're going to be talking about um, today. And we brought in an expert who works with um, clients as they transition to various phases of life. And today we're going to talk about some elder care law. Um, I'd like to introduce Chuck Stansberry. He is an attorney at Schober, Schober and Mitchell. They're located in New Berlin. And I'm going to share. Uh, there's 15 attorneys that work there. And Chuck, how long have you worked there? I've been with the firm since 2001. So quite a long time. Um, Chuck focuses um, on issues of estate planning, Title 19, elder law, real estate matters, probate issues, and general corporate law. If you uh, find that you'd like to reach out to Chuck, I'm going to share his phone number right away. It's 262-785-1820. So with that, uh, I'd like to welcome Chuck to the show. So let's talk about elder care and um, why it's such a hot topic. The costs of elder care are astronomical. When you research that, what are you finding that some of the costs are? Well, it's interesting because I I think most people's perceptions are that they are going to be able to stay in their home for the remainder of their life and will pass naturally with little to no assistance being needed throughout the the course of their life. And when uh, we look at actual numbers, and this is going back to 2016, um, just to have an individual be uh, attending adult daycare, you're probably looking at around $18,000 a year in terms of annual costs. If it gets to a point where uh, in-home placement isn't tenable any longer and assisted living is would be required to have some assistance with some of those activities of daily living, we're probably looking uh, at around forty-four thousand uh, dollars, and that's again two twenty sixteen numbers, and which will only continue to increase. Uh, preferably, people would like to keep themselves in the home. Sometimes the only way to make that work will be to bring care into the home, and that also has a cost associated with it, which would be in the fifty thousand dollar range. Um, and then, and lastly, at some points, you you reach a point where actual skilled care is needed. And then, you know, they're probably in uh, an eighty to $90,000 range for a what I would call average nursing home, not even one of the, the truly uh, high-end facilities. Well, you know, we experienced this firsthand with my father. So my father um, and mother, they did purchase long-term care, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But my father was in assisted living, and the costs that we're talking about here are the exact costs that he incurred. Or, and through his long-term care policy, he was able to um, utilize that insurance coverage. But I'll share, we had to make that decision very quickly in his case because he had a health crisis. And um, it was very unnerving to kind of select this facility, research the insurance, and so on. Um, I'll tell you, as he has aged, his care has increased, and so have the costs. So um, it is astronomical when you look at some of these costs. So let's talk. I brought up a little bit on long-term care. There's a couple ways of funding this. Um, And, you know, I'll have you share some of the costs that you see your clients using to fund this expense. Thanks, Jean. Uh, With long-term care expenses, the the most basic, simplest way to cover those costs would be to self-fund. But keeping in mind that it's almost like saving for a child's education, 
needing eighty to ninety thousand dollars a year for an indefinite period of time, that I find to be very difficult for most of my clients to self-fund their entire stay. So then we look at whether we can be proactive through the use of long-term care insurance and the flexibility that those products have um, generated through as time has gone on. They, they've made them very nice vehicles to provide a source of funding for not only facility care, but also in-home care, which all of my clients, if they're given a choice of staying in the home versus having to uproot into a facility, the preference is always to stay in the home. Where there isn't sufficient funding to self-fund or there haven't been enough um, pre-planning steps taken with the long-term care insurance, then our last payer of resort is through federal funds, which is through the Medicaid program. And I think that's an important distinction. Many times people confuse what is known as Medicare, which is the hospital insurance, with Medicaid, which is the program that will cover long-term care facilities, whether that's assisted living or skilled nursing. You know, and I'll share, Wisconsin actually rewards people for buying traditional long-term care insurance, don't they? It's Correct. It, they actually have a rule that states that to the extent you have a long-term care insurance policy, they will allow you to protect an equivalent amount of assets if the policy is is specifically set up in, in, a, in a certain fashion. So if you have $300,000 worth of long-term care benefit, if you would go into a facility, the state would allow you to pass $300,000 worth of value onto your heirs. So before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about long-term care because it's impacted my family in such a positive way. You know, there's three ways of purchasing long-term care insurance. And the first is what I like to refer to as traditional long-term care. You pay a premium and you continue paying that premium until you pass away or need the service. And so I always say it's the insurance everybody wants, but nobody wants to pay for. And think of it as your auto and home insurance. You pay that premium hoping to never use it, but it's there in the event you need it. So in my parents' case... It was the best investment my dad made because he made these premiums and he's been in assisted living for about the last nine years and they're helping support that lifestyle. On the flip side, my mother, who also had traditional long-term care insurance, it was the worst investment she made because she died before she could use any of it. But it provided that peace of mind for her while she was alive, knowing if she needed the care, she had insurance to cover that expense. So that's one way of um, buying long-term care and helping fund that expense. Another way is to buy a life insurance policy with a long-term care rider. So if you buy, for example, a $300,000 policy, that insurance provider knows it's either going to pay $300,000 in long-term care or $300,000 in a death benefit. And for pure example purposes, if somebody used $100,000 for long-term care benefits and passed away, somebody would be the beneficiary of the remainder $200,000 on that policy. So... Um, that's another way of funding long-term care. There's a third way, and it's a new way. I like to refer to it as a hybrid, where you make premiums over a specific time period. Now, remember, traditional long-term care and the life insurance with the long-term care rider, you are paying premiums until you need the service. This way, you make premiums for a specific period, anywhere from a single premium 
all the way up to 10 years, and then you're done paying that expense. And there's a pool of money that grows at a certain rate for long-term long-term care expenses into the future. If you were to pass away, somebody would actually be the beneficiary of only the premiums paid. So it's kind of a, a an alternative way of funding that expense, not knowing if you're going to need it. Check with your advisor um, to see which way is best for you. But I did want to uh, point out the three ways of funding long-term care expenses. So let's jump into a little bit on... Um, we talked with what's the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, and I think, Chuck, you made it pretty clear. Medicare is the hospital insurance coverage where, give us a, a definition of Medicaid again. Sure. So Medicare is what everyone um, will be receiving as their health insurance once they turn 65. That insurance is mainly a hospital insurance. Uh, most of my clients will also independently get some sort of supplement to provide another layer of coverage. But what it's important for people to realize is, is that if one is in a hospital and then needs to be discharged to either assisted living or a skilled nursing facility, is that the Medicare coverage will be of a limited duration. Uh, the maximum uh, total coverage would be 100 days and that would be entirely dependent on whether the rehabilitative services were actually continuing to improve the individual's condition. Any time within that 100-day period, the facility may terminate the Medicare and uh, require the person to become a private pay resident. All right. I'm getting a little cue. We should take a break here, but let's pick up where we left off at our next segment. Um, again, if you'd like to reach out to Chuck, he can be reached at 262-785-1820. And with that, we'll take a break. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. If you'd like to learn about us in greater detail, please visit ellenbecker.com for more details. My guest today is Chuck Stansberry, and we are talking about elder care, Medicare, Title 19, and how to plan as you find a parent uh, or a loved one is aging. And during our last segment, we stopped um, mid-topic of Medicare versus Medicaid. And I think it's really important to uh, stress what the differences are. Oftentimes, clients will say to me, you know what, I'm going to just let the government pay for my care. And Chuck, share with us, how does that really work? The distinction is the Medicare, which everyone over age 65 has, that again is mainly hospital insurance. That eligibility for that program is not means tested. So you could have a million dollars, you could have $5,000 in the bank, you're going to be treated the same way. The limitations on that program when you are in a long-term care setting are 100 days. And anytime within the 100 days, the Medicare could end. At that point, an individual would be on a private pay basis until such time that they financially qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid is the federally funded state-run program that deals with long-term care facilities. In Wisconsin, if you're in a nursing home, it's Medicaid, such as Title 19. If you're in assisted living, it goes by a different name, family care. But the rules are identical. 
So as I researched the whole Medicare versus Medicaid, um, Medicare Part A will only cover up to 100 days of skilled nursing per incident of illness. So it's really not long-term care. When I think of long-term, I think of beyond 100 days. And if I'm understanding you correct, you have to show continued progress in rehabilitation, correct? Correct. It's a situation, it's meant for rehabbing an individual to such an extent that they can return back into the community. So number one, it is of limited duration. And the other thing to note is within that 100-day time frame, the first 20 days is actually the only time period where there would be 100% coverage by Medicare. After you get to the 21st day, then there will be some additional monies that will be owed. Hopefully, if the individual has a strong Medicare supplement policy, those costs will be covered for the most part. But if there is, number one, a, a lack of improvement, the facility determines that there isn't sufficient uh, improvement from week to week, or if you exhaust the 100 days, at that point, Medicare will end, and then it becomes a private pay scenario. So how do you become eligible for Medicaid? For Medicaid, there's two different asset limits, depending on whether or not we are dealing with a single individual or a married couple. So for a single individual, it's, it's a pretty easy rule. It's $2,000 in countable assets. And that's an important note in that even though you may own things, they may or may not be countable for Medicaid eligibility purposes. For a married couple, it's, it gets a little bit more complicated. We have to look and determine what the countable assets are as of a particular day And then that number then dictates what the asset limit will be. That could be as low as $52,000 or as high as over a little bit over $123,000. But ultimately, in order to qualify for Medicaid, the assets need to be spent down below the applicable asset limit. So when you talk about assets that are not counted towards the um, asset limit... Are the assets that are not counted the same for married and single people? And if so, what are they? That's a great question. The answer does depend on whether we're dealing with a single individual versus a married couple. With a married couple, the the law is built to protect against the healthy spouse becoming totally impoverished. And so as a result, the house, for example, as long as it has uh, an equity of $750,000 or less, is a non-countable asset. Also, the retirement accounts, now that can be whether it's in an uh, an annuity wrapper or an investment wrapper, uh, anything that's a qualified money, 401k, IRA, Roth IRA, or 403b, those assets that are owned by the healthy spouse are not counted. Also, one vehicle, regardless of value, would not be counted. And then lastly, with a married couple, any assets that have been designated for burial are treated as unavailable and not counted for purposes of determining our asset limit or for ultimately determining whether or not we are eligible. With a single individual, the rules are much more strict. We have a $2,000 asset limit All retirement accounts are counted towards that. Uh, One vehicle, if it can be said that it is used for 
to and from transportation to medical appointments can be exempted. Burial funds need to be structured in a very particular manner with the funeral home in order for those to be exempted. So we're really looking at a more of an all-in with a single individual as to what the county will be counting. Boy, so it's very clear in order to become eligible for Medicaid, um, your assets have to be minimal and you're spending down. So if I have a situation with a husband and wife, and let's go back to the era of the 1950s where the husband went to work and the wife worked inside the home, most of the assets are in the husband's name. So if the um, wife were to go into a nursing home because she can keep, the husband can keep the house, a car, about, I'm going to say, $100,000 in all of his retirement plans, he's doing okay because she would get on entitlement quicker. And not that he um, necessarily put her on an entitlement program, but the option's there. On the flip side, if he were to go into a facility she can keep the house, a car, about 100000 and all of her retirement accounts. Well, she doesn't have any because she didn't work outside the home. So kind of interesting. Um, we're going to take a break now. I want everybody to think of their situation um, while we're on break, meaning try and add up what do they have in retirement accounts versus their spouse, and then we'll continue this conversation when we return. Again, if you'd like to talk to Chuck, he can be reached at 262-785-1820. With that, let's take a short break. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. I hope you're enjoying our conversation today and thinking about your own situation or your um, parents' situation. But um, it's it's a topic that often comes up during client meetings, um, whether it's for the client or they share some challenges that their parents are going through. So it's something we want to be um, able to discuss and to provide some knowledge. And obviously, we're not attorneys, so we bring the experts in. And the expert across the table for me today is Chuck Stansbury. And he works for um, Schober, Schober, and Mitchell. They're located right in New Berlin. And um, he's sharing a ton of knowledge and advice on um, Medicare and Medicaid planning. So we're going to continue this conversation and talk about uh, Medicaid eligibility. And oftentimes people will say, you know what, I'm, I, I don't want the nursing home to get my money. I'm just going to give it away. And that can't happen, can it? So what are some of the rules behind that? People have to be very careful as they get older in terms of their choices in making gifts, whether that is an incentive to protect assets from long-term care or merely being generous with loved ones. The biggest mistake I see uh, on a daily basis is that most people recall that there is a certain amount each year that they can give away per the IRS without any sort of penalty. And that number is actually for 2018, $15,000, and that's what's known as the annual gift tax exclusion. Where the problem comes in is that is a gift tax law. It is not a Medicaid law or rule. And so although those gifts would be perfectly fine in terms of a gift tax standpoint, from a Medicaid standpoint, those gifts unintentionally can create major problems 
The reason for that is that there is what is known as a five-year or 60-month look-back period. In effect, when somebody applies for long-term care benefits, the state will look at the prior 60 months and inquire as to whether any gifts have been made. And for purposes of this inquiry, it's all gifts, regardless of how de minimis, including gifts to church or to charity, uh, including birthday and wedding gifts, the county is supposed to add all of them up throughout that five-year window. And then once the person runs out of money, then the county imposes a waiting period, what's called a divestment penalty, where even if the person doesn't have any money left, the state still says that they are ineligible for Medicaid because of the gifts that have been made previously. All right. So as I hear that, and I know what some of my clients are thinking is, how are they going to know I gave my son or daughter 15000 or I gave my church um, 15000 or even 5000 How do they look back to see where their money went? As part of the application, there will be a question that asks, has anything been given away? Or even the old, I'll sell my house for $5 to my son. Anytime there's any sort of transfer for less than fair market value, that's the equivalent of having made a gift. So number one, they will ask you on the application, keeping in mind that the providing of false information is subject to both monetary and criminal fraud for Medicaid fraud. In addition, the county has the ability, in many cases will, request five years worth of bank records. So as you can imagine, many times it's difficult enough to get the last two bank statements, much less the last 60. But they will sit down and question any large withdrawals and even some large deposits. Well, and I would think with the age of technology, for a bank to have to replicate those um, time periods wouldn't be too difficult. Correct. And, and even more so with real estate, it's very easy for them to check real estate records and determine when transactions were made, and they do that as a regular part of the application process. So you find yourself in a much worse position if you're not being 100% transparent and honest at the time of application if the county comes back and finds that you were neglecting to list certain transfers. I have to share an interesting story. So we had a family member um, that was eligible for Medicaid, and they were on the Title 19 program. Well, in the uh, when this individual had passed away, Social Security deposited that $255 death benefit. And quickly, uh, this relative got a letter stating that he had too many dollars of assets and he was being knocked off at Title 19. And we thought, well, he's passed away. But do you see how quick they had the records? So they obviously were monitoring those account balances because, again, that one single deposit of the $255 pushed him over the limit. So interesting. I'm going to ask, what happens if somebody gives all their money to their children and it's discovered as they are trying to become Medicaid eligible and the kids spend the money? Have that, you ever seen that? That's that's a great great question, and actually, those type of scenarios are what keeps me up late at night in terms of what do we do. the The problem is is that for every and, and for 2018, it, the number breaks down to about 278 dollars. For every 278 dollars you've given away, 
uh, in the last five years. That's one day that once you're out of money, you have to pay privately in some fashion. So if the individual themselves are out of money and, and the children are either unable or unwilling to return the money, then our last option is something called a hardship waiver. So we can go to the county and say, you're right, we made a gift, we should be penalized, but because of the fact that we have no other manner to pay for our care, it will put us at risk to our own health, and therefore we're asking you to waive the penalty. Those are hard waivers to obtain. Uh, the county looks at those in a fairly uh, negative light. Um, they want people to know that there are consequences to their gifts. That's interesting because we do hear that and we often wonder what happens. So thanks for clarifying that. You know, but there are some myths when you think about planning for Medicaid. And as much as we've talked about uh, having that 60-month look-back period or that five-year window where you can't give away your assets, in essence, you could give away some assets. Correct. And, and what I would strongly advise anyone who is either in a facility or on, you know, on the verge of entering assisted living or long-term care is to seek the counsel of a elder law attorney before making any transfers, even if you think from what your knowledge is that that would be uh, appropriate and not create any issue. But the, the reality of the situation is, is if gifts are planned properly, there would be some mechanisms to make gifts, whether that would be uh, over time or whether in a lump sum fashion, keeping in mind that once those monies are gifted, as you mentioned earlier, Gene, those monies are should be considered to be gone. Um, you shouldn't necessarily just assume that the kids or the grandkids are going to hold those funds uh, for your future needs. Good point. With that, um, we're going to take a quick break. Again, Chuck uh, Stansberry can be reached at 262-785-1820. And with that, again, let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 on Capitol Drive, as well as in Whitefish Bay, right across the street from Winkies. And we're now able to service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. So our guest today is Chuck Stansberry, and we've had a great conversation around Medicare, Medicaid planning. And when we ended the last segment, we were just getting into that conversation about giving your assets away. And uh, I'm going to go through a scenario. Let's say, and I'm not promoting this, but somebody uh, loves their son and their daughter-in-law so much that in their 70s, they say, you know what? I'm going to give all my assets to my son and daughter-in-law because uh, I don't need them right now. And... In the event I need nursing care, I would rather the assets go to them. Have you ever seen situations like that go sour? And let's talk about what could go wrong with that situation or that scenario. That That is a scenario that we find is a concern for a lot of the clients that come to see us. And, and when we first sit down with them, that is the initial starting point of our discussions in terms of what our clients' intentions are. And, and I try to have them... Uh, caution themselves and say, let's let's think this through. There's a number of problems. The first is facilities, whether it's assisted living or long-term care skilled facilities, they can discriminate based on how much money you have when you are trying to get in. 
Some newer assisted living facilities uh, will only accept private pay funds, and even those that ultimately will accept Medicaid can impose a private pay requirement of a year or two years. So the first problem is, is if an individual is given all their assets away, they're going to be fairly unattractive to any facility that's out there, which is going to mean that their son and daughter-in-law are going to have quite the challenge finding placement if care outside of the home is needed. So that's the first downside. The other concern is that the money is being transferred. What ultimately happens to them? I, I know in most cases the parents believe that the child will hold those funds, and if they are ever needed, they are there. Um, the child will return the funds in short order. The reality of the situation is that even though your child may be the most uh, trustworthy child there is, there are a number of situations that they have no control over. So, for example, what happens if the child gets divorced or uh, gets sued or personally guarantees a loan and that uh, business deal goes under and, and they ultimately have to go bankrupt? The reality of the situation is that from any third-party creditor that is out there, those funds are now the child's funds and are subject to attachment by creditors. So although at first transferring all your assets to protect them seems like the best idea, again, first because of the possible difficulty in finding placement, but also the likelihood that should something unexpected occur, those funds may be ultimately gone. That's interesting, and I think people often forget about that. So let's continue this conversation around Medicaid and uh, talk about um, irrevocable trusts. So we've talked uh, a little bit about planning financially, and oftentimes people will say, maybe I should have an irrevocable trust. What is actually an irrevocable trust? I think it would be helpful to just briefly review what a revocable trust is, because most people when they are talking about a trust that is set up or has been set up by them for estate planning, are referring to a revocable trust. From a Medicaid standpoint, that revocable trust does not provide any protection whatsoever from long-term care costs. The reason is, number one, those trusts are, by definition, ordinarily revocable, meaning you can always change it, and then secondly, the trust ordinarily will state that the person that who is, who is creating the trust is entitled to all of the income and all of the principal. So from Medicaid's standpoint, if you have full access, or any access for that matter, to the underlying trust assets, it's a countable asset. So a irrevocable trust is a trust that once you set it up, there's no ability to change it. And in addition, the other requirement is that in order for us to protect assets, the person creating it gives up all rights to the underlying trust asset. So if you would put $50,000 into the irrevocable trust, you could decide how that money was invested, but it really is the ultimate rainy day fund. The trust specifically would state that none of that money could be returned to you or used for your benefit. So when we sit down with clients, that's a pretty big eye-opener because most clients 
need to be able to feel as if they won't need that money at any point in the future in order to proceed with an irrevocable trust. And are irrevocable trusts part of the 60-month look-back period? They are. So if you would set up a trust in 2018, in you'd be looking at five years before those trust assets would be ultimately protected. And again, then, those assets are gone. They can't be used for... Um, long-term care or your care, you basically have gifted those assets away. Correct. Correct. Interesting. I know I want more doors to open up, um, so I will not be gifting away my assets um, at that point. Um, Money provides flexibility, with which in the long-term care context becomes very important in terms of the quality of the facility, the location of the facility, and the services that that facility provides, including is, is something as simple as whether or not you have a private room or not. That's so true, and we see that with our clients as well as family members. Let's shift gears just for a moment. We've talked a little bit about Medicare and Medicaid. One of the documents that should also be in place are, is something called a healthcare power of attorney and a financial power of attorney. Um, share with us what do those documents do and why are they so important? There's a big misconception amongst the married couples that I work with that merely because they are married, if their spouse needs medical care, that they will be able to make any and all decisions, including placement into a facility. Similarly, they have the same misconception that they, because they're standing as a spouse, they are able to access any of their spouse's financial accounts. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. From a healthcare perspective, unless an individual has a healthcare power of attorney designating who is their appointed healthcare agent, there is no legal right just because you're someone's spouse to make decisions. And absent a healthcare power of attorney, our only alternative is something known as a legal guardianship, which takes time and it also is very expensive. From the financial standpoint, uh, a spouse may be able to access a joint account that they own with their spouse, but if they need to pull money out of the spouse's IRA, that's not going to be able to be done either uh, unless there's a power of attorney or a guardianship. Well, you know, it's clear with that type of document, not only should you need it for the elderly, also for that child going off to college when they're 18 years old. I think everybody should have a health care power of attorney. With that, I'm being told our time is up today. Um, Chuck can be reached again at 262-785-1820. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. And remember, we hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Be well. Your EIG Wealth Advisor can help you control risk, make sure your estate plan is in order, and help you understand your financial plan during retirement. But we can't control one of the largest drains on your portfolio during retirement. That's your health. For that, we'd like to share expert cooking tips and health wisdom from a local expert, Chef Michael Becker. So stay tuned. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Food Sense. Well... Here we are together one more time, and we're going to talk food. But this time, I want to focus on something else. I want to focus on my 
cooking show that is on WISN Channel 12 every Saturdays at noon. The reason I am mentioning this uh, cooking show is because my cooking show is more about the whys of food. Why does food does what it does? Why do certain ingredients react the way they do? And so on and so forth. And I received an email in regards to the food that I cooked on the show this past Saturday that I wanted to share with you. The email was, Chef, the sauce that you made for the chicken was extremely, it looked extremely simple, but there wasn't that much explanation. Well, I'm sorry. I think she was right. The person who wrote this email. So I need to go through the sauce with you and you will see how easy it is. The beauty of this sauce is a Mexican sauce because basically the entire show shows, which are about six of them, are focused on the new Mexican restaurant that I have opened called Tumesa, which means your table. This is one of the special chickens that I serve at Tumesa, which is called Pollo a la Brasa, which means a grilled chicken. But I also made a sauce for it because I love this combination together. Here we go. This is the sauce. Ready? Looks how simple it is. One tomatillo or green tomato. One red tomato. One clove of garlic. One chipotle bell pepper that is comes in adobe salsa. These are all ones, so you remember all of these. Small bunch of cilantro and one tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil. You first add the tomatillo, the tomato, the garlic, and the cilantro to a dry pan with no oil whatsoever, and you char the tomatoes and the tomatillo. Basically, they take the skin, and due to the dry pan, they start getting charred and giving you that beautiful roasted smoky flavor. Then you add your extra virgin olive oil and stir together. Everything is nice and roasted about three minutes. You add one tablespoon to two tablespoons of water, water, nothing else. And you cover and you allow everything to come together and cook. Within five to six minutes, all the tomatillo and the tomatoes are going to be mush. You blend, there is your sauce, that's it. The beauty of this sauce is you can use some for salsa and dip your chips in there. You can put it over your uh, chicken, if you wish. You can make an amazing omelet in the morning and put the salsa on it or the sauce on it and some nice shredded cheese. So much and so much you can do with this sauce is absolutely amazing. The most important thing is that this sauce freezes perfectly. Why? Because it's a blended ingredients that have emulsified and have come together. And since it has very little oil in it, you don't need to worry about the sauce breaking or separating in the freezing process and defrosting process. That usually happens to sauces that have a lot of oil and a lot of butter in them. Now, after this salsa is made, I want to quickly take you through the process of making the chicken. Just give me two seconds of your time. Ready? Listen. Always, always, always be generous when you season a whole chicken. I did the same thing on the show, and I showed somebody emailed me and said, Chef, that was a lot of salt. That was nothing because you have an entire flesh and the entire body of the chicken. Okay? So that's what I want you to remember about cooking chicken. Season well. Until next week, I want you to try this sauce. Enjoy it. 
Think about me. And if you don't have time to make it, that's okay. Come to Tumesa and I'll cook for you. Love you and thank you for allowing me to be in your life by listening to my cooking shows and watching my cooking shows and listening to me on the radio. Until next week. If you would like more of Chef Becker's recipes and food tips, go to ellenbecker.com and click under the resource tab.